0: Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening from wherever you are. This is the Here Comes the Pain podcast with your host, Joel Payne, here for our second installment episode. Thank you to all of those who joined for episode one. We had a fantastic conversation with Amisha Cross. Democratic strategist, and Shermichael Singleton, Republican strategist, two very good friends of mine who I'm sure you'll hear on this feed again. We had a great conversation related to the 2020 race, to coronavirus, and to who Vice President Biden would pick to be his running mate uh, coming up this November. And it's interesting as I come to you now from what is a very, very different world than where I signed off of this podcast last week we are in the midst of a crisis really unlike any I've seen in my lifetime. Um, I am just shy of 40 years old. I'm 37 years old, so I'm not old enough to remember the race riots of the 1960s. But what we're seeing in America mirrors a lot of what was experienced back then. And I think it would be a mistake to assume that the Carnage we've seen on the streets, and there's there's really no other word for it, and I, I choose that word purposefully because it's a word the president introduced to the lexicon. But the carnage we see on the street is really not just about George Floyd. Obviously, the heinous murder that was captured on video of George Floyd in Minneapolis, Minnesota, by uh, Officer Derek Chauvin of the Minneapolis Police Force and three colleagues who were essentially aiding and abetting and who were onlookers, that was an awful moment. And that was the, the, the tender that sparked what we are dealing with over the last week. But clearly there are so many other things that are driving the frustration that we're seeing spill over on the streets. The last 96 hours, the last four days, it's it's spread from Minneapolis. It's In the city that I reside in right now, Washington, D.C., there were major demonstrations in Atlanta, Been major demonstrations in places like Los Angeles, big, uh, really hard to watch interactions between protesters and police in New York. Um, There are so many things to unpack here, particularly around how we label things, how we title them, who's viewing who is the aggressor. And depending on who you talk to, some people will say that the majority of the crowd are being peaceful and that there are a couple of bad apples and that the police are attacking the bad apples and by extension also attacking the people who are peaceful protesters. And uh, there are others who will say that the protesters are troublemakers. And I think what's interesting about this moment is there's really no opportunity to sit on the sidelines everybody's being forced to choose sides and it feels inadequate to not have an opinion at least if you watch cable news or if you're on Twitter it feels inadequate to not have a strong opinion I think most support is with the protesters because I think most of the protesters have been peaceful protesters people who are just angry and they're fed up and they're tired of watching particularly young black men, but also young black women fall victim to being murdered by police. And, and even using that term, you know, I talked about label a moment ago, even using that term of murder. That's new. We didn't used to call this murder. We used to call it police involved brutality or police involved shootings. We've even changed up our language related to that. So we're, 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 Tiptoeing into a very different world. And again, there's a lot to unpack here. I want to talk about a few things related to what's going on. But there are so many other things that are going on right now. And I want to dig into those other factors that are causing the unrest that we're dealing with. We're also going to talk about the occupant of the White House, our commander in chief. And how the president has really botched this moment and how his reaction to date has only served to inflame the emotions and the feelings on the ground. Normally, we look to our presidents as healers and uniters, people who bring communities together. We obviously don't have that luxury in the current occupant of the White House. So we want to talk about that a little bit. I want to also talk about hero culture and my thoughts there about how it appears that we are seeking easy silver bullet solutions to very complicated, complex problems. And I want to cite a couple of examples from the last week to talk about that. And then I want to end by talking about some potential ideas for how we can get from this moment to a better place. And admittedly, This is a complicated problem that probably one podcaster with one set of ideas is probably not going to be able to solve. But I have some ideas about how we can start to take the first steps to getting back to solid footing and getting back to a place where people are listening to each other and people feel invested in working together to solve the problems that we have. That we want to move to a moment where. People on the street don't feel like their only solution is to loot and to burn out stores and to overturn cars. That's not the best solution to speak out about the disagreements you have with your government, local government, national government. Van Jones was on TV the other day and he talked about how if you talk and no one's listening, you, you might scream. And if you scream and no one's listening... You might jump up and down. And if you jump up and down and no one's listening, you might pick up something and throw it. And that explains the progression of how people take fundamental frustrations and turn them into what we've witnessed here over the last, like I said, 96 hours. So we want to talk about how we move to a solution that is productive. So we're going to take a quick break here and we're going to come right back. And we're going to dig into some of these topics. Again, this is the Here Comes the Pain podcast. Your host, Joel Payne. We'll be right back. So let's talk about this moment and how it is bigger than just the horrific murder of George Floyd. And this is not meant to minimize what happened to George Floyd. It's probably the worst piece of video you could imagine Um, In this moment where everything is on videotape, watching Officer Chauvin kneel on his neck for almost nine minutes. Three of those minutes we know Mr. Floyd was unresponsive. It's gut-wrenching, it's heartbreaking, and it's understandable why that has lit this fire in part. But I think it would be short-sighted to suggest that that's the only reason why we're at this moment. Let's take a look at where we're at in the progression of the world. As I speak to you today, we are over three months into the novel coronavirus pandemic becoming a public flashpoint. Most of the uh, jobs in the country have essentially taken a, a pause button from early March till now. We know that 40 million plus Americans have filed for unemployment insurance over the last some six weeks. We know that over 100,000 Americans have lost their lives to coronavirus. But we also know that even before the coronavirus pandemic and before this latest spate of killings that have enraged the country, we were already very divided. I think what you're seeing is tantamount to... A continuation of what started at the beginning of the Trump presidency, right? We started at the beginning of the Trump presidency with the Women's March. And really, in a lot of ways, that crescendoed with the election of the Democratic House, Nancy Pelosi being reinstalled as a speaker. But despite Pelosi being reinstalled as a speaker and Democrats taking over the House, you've still had these frustrations that have been bubbling beneath the surface. And really all you have to do is go back and look at history to see these moments that are these trigger moments, Um, like the moment that we're in right now. I'll point everybody's attention. I'll encourage everybody to go and Google Franz Ferdinand. And Franz Ferdinand was a part of the Austria-Hungary royal family. Um... And in 1914, he and his wife were assassinated. And what is interesting about that assassination is that they were... That led Austria-Hungary to declare war against Serbia. And that led to World War I. Now, most people in America don't think about World War I being because of a you know, territorial fight between Austria-Hungary and Serbia. But we know that over the course of our history, these moments happen where there are unintended consequences because of trigger events. And I would compare what we're going through right now with George Floyd to the assassination of Franz Ferdinand. This was the straw that broke the camel's back. This is not... You know, people aren't rioting simply because this one black man had his life taken away from him in Minneapolis, as awful as it was. Again, it's because this is the latest symptom of a larger problem in America about inequality, about income inequality, about racial inequality, you know, the lack of racial justice and militarization of police. And we're probably a lot closer to a second civil war than most people would like to acknowledge. So I think it's important to be a student of history when considering where we are right now. That assassination of Franz Ferdinand, that moment, and this moment with George Floyd, there are a lot of similarities and there's a lot of cross comparisons there to make. I think... Also, when you think about the president, and we'll spend a little bit of time on this. President Trump is the worst possible person at the worst time in history to be president of the United States. And he got lucky that for the first three years of his presidency, that he was able to get by by making these grand pronouncements And to do a lot of smoke and mirrors and, you know, don't believe your lying eyes. There was a lot of that. Donald Trump could get by on continuing the Obama boom, the Obama recovery, which is really what we were in the midst of up until the last three months. That wasn't Donald Trump's recovery. That was Barack Obama's recovery. Okay. But Trump was able to essentially ride the coattails of all the hard work that was done In the last six years of Obama. And I was there. I worked for Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid. I was a part of the passage of Obamacare. I was a part of passing a lot of different economic stimulus packages and bills and things of that nature to get the economy recovered from the Great Recession back in 2008. So Trump was a recipient of that. And he was able to create a narrative that everything was going fine. Trump is the ultimate peacetime president and I didn't think he was a particularly great peacetime president but at least the country could survive a peacetime Trump presidency during wartime we're seeing right now Donald Trump is a complete catastrophe he doesn't have the moral authority to lead no one trusts any words that are coming out of his mouth this is a moment when a president should be able to have an Oval Office address and be able to impact the country to heal, and to unite and come together. There is nobody that thinks that Donald Trump has the ability to stand up, give a 10-minute talk about why folks should bring the temperature down, why people should believe in the system that he presides over, why people should trust that he is committed to uh, correcting a lot of the things that ill society, cor- he is committed to Um, repairing racial injustice. Nobody would believe that based on what you hear from Donald Trump. And I thought Chuck Todd was great. I know he takes a lot of incoming. He takes a lot of criticism. Chuck Todd, uh, of course, moderator of NBC Meet the Press. He takes a lot of criticism, but I thought he was great earlier this week when he asked the question somewhat rhetorically, is the president afraid to lead? And it does feel that way. It feels like for the first time, He's actually being challenged to lead. And again, it'd be a mistake to just isolate this to what's going on right now with George Floyd. It's not just about that, right? Yes, that that is a moment, and and this is a moment where he is uniquely unqualified to lead around easing racial tensions, someone who has essentially built his entire political career on stoking racial tensions. But he doesn't have the authority to lead there. He also doesn't have the authority to lead on coronavirus, I mean, this president essentially has said he's willing to risk people's lives to reopen the country. And remember, who are the lives that he is risking? He is willing to risk by reopening the country. It's majority black and brown lives. Look at the splits on the the percentage of people in certain cities and certain areas and the percentage of folks who have died or who have been impacted by coronavirus. I think in D.C., it's 44% of the population, 76% of the deaths. And I think that kind of uh, split has has really been mimicked across the country in places like Detroit, um, in, in, in big cities like Minneapolis, and in Atlanta, and, and, and New York City, where obviously New York has been the epicenter. We've seen that really disturbing split because, of course, we know black communities are you know, predisposed to a lot of the health ailments that coronavirus attacks. And why are black and brown communities particularly vulnerable? Because you have a healthcare system that's inadequate. That Donald Trump is actively suing to take away health care from tens of millions of Americans. Many of them, those African-American citizens who are dependent upon that healthcare system to be able to survive a pandemic like coronavirus. So he doesn't have the moral authority to lead. He doesn't have the record that would suggest that he's actually committed to doing the things that a president would normally do at a moment like this to correct uh, w- where we are. To, to, to bend the curve in the right way, um, as Dr. King said, to, to, to bend the arc of history in, in, in the way of progress. Donald Trump doesn't have the skill set to do that. You know, I think up until this point, many of us have accepted that Donald Trump is going to behave the way he's going to behave and that he is going to prioritize himself over the well-being of the country. And I think we're seeing now that it's deadly. I've been sounding alarms for a long time about Donald Trump's words being one of the biggest threats to human life right now in the country. And I know that sounds hyperbolic, but I hope people take a moment to Think about what that means in a moment like this. Let's just go back to the fall. Let's take ourselves away from this moment with coronavirus and with George Floyd. Let's go back to the fall when, remember, we had the Cold War-like atmosphere that he created with Iran, right? He essentially bluffed us into a fake 48-hour war with Iran where they attacked our you know, military installations in the Middle East. Also, that kind of helped lead to the, you know, the the Russians shooting a plane out of the sky in Iran. Excuse me, the, the Iranian shooting a plane out of the sky in Iran um, that was traveling in the region. So Donald Trump's words have already resulted in a lot of people dying and a lot of pain and a lot of anguish. And I think... The president is probably right now one of the biggest dangers to people's safety and security. And that's just something we're not equipped to deal with. We're not ready to deal with because in our lifetimes, we really haven't had to. I mean, look, the closest comparisons to this are Ronald Reagan actively playing defense against, you know, a a, a national solution to the burgeoning AIDS crisis in the early 80s. That was bad. okay, but. Even looking back in history, you can somewhat forgive Reagan considering the generational divide there and the fact that he didn't fully understand the disease. But nonetheless, you could say the same thing about Reagan in that moment. But I don't know if we've had a moment where we, the people, we, the public, have to fight the president to stay safe. Normally, the president is standing to the side of us or standing behind us to help us you know, identify the solution. Donald Trump doesn't have the skill set or the interest to do that. And so his lack of leadership and and him pushing the country to this unparalleled level of division and uh, just strife and unhappiness and, and discomfort, I think it's really showing itself and it's really rearing its ugly head in a moment like this. Trump And his reaction are central to what we're dealing with right now. I want to also talk a little bit about hero culture. We're actually going to take a quick break and I'll come right back and we'll talk about hero culture in this moment. And I want to jump to a couple of different examples here because I think this is an interesting thing to think about. We often look to individuals and individual moments to be the silver bullet solves to what we're dealing with and i think what we're finding more and more is that that's not really possible that's hard to come by so i want to talk about that but we're going to take a quick quick break and we'll be right back to talk about the final two parts of this moment that we're in right now and just some of my observations around that thanks for sticking with us it's the here comes the pain podcast with your host joel Payne. i'll be right back We're back here on the Here Comes the Pain podcast. Let's continue our conversation. So, where we left off, we were talking about hero culture. And I want to talk about hero culture right now through a couple of different prisms and lenses. So, there was a tweet that was sent out a few days ago by Katie Couric, you know, noted former anchor of the Today Show. She was actually the first woman to... Uh, anchor, the evening news, one of the big three evening evening news telecasts. She's a she's a giant in American journalism um, and, and very well respected And generally speaking, I, I think most people are not offended by Katie Kirk, but she co- caused a little bit of a stir on Twitter when she tweeted out essentially uh, a call to action by former President Obama and by extension former President George W. Bush by saying this is the moment where they should be, Coming together for some blue ribbon, you know, commission, uh, joint presentation type of moment where they come and try to save the country. And look, I don't want to pick on Katie Couric. I actually, I understood the point she was making. I think actually some of the criticism she got was a bit unfair. But I think it's important to kind of dig deep into why she sent out that tweet and why people were so upset with it. She positioned this as if this was a moment where. Barack Obama just through his words is now a private citizen. He's not he hasn't been in, uh, head of government. He hasn't been the president for over 3 years. You know, Barack Obama served the country for 8 years in the way that he was supposed to, but he hasn't been in that role for 3 years. And it's also not Barack Obama's, you know, his his lifetime responsibility is not to swoop in and solve racial disharmony it's nice when he chooses to lend his voice to those causes. And and he and his wife have both actually been very vocal about this case. They both put out very eloquent statements where they talked about this case and talked about their feelings about it. But to suggest that he is responsible for coming out and somewhat saving the country at a moment like this, I think it just kind of underscores this hero culture moment that we're in. And look, I, you know, talked about Donald Trump a little bit earlier, but in a lot of ways, it's it's kind of how we've gotten our last two presidents. We've very much chosen individuals with magnetism and with, um, you know, with a certain level of of uh, celebrity, a certain level of charisma. That's not a knock to Barack Obama, and that's not to be an extra credit to Donald Trump because uh, he's got charisma. It's just the reality of it that we chose the individuals that were the, the most charismatic and the, and the ones that could perform on, on the big stage. And, and, and that is not itself a problem. What is a problem is when we assume that these, these super individuals, in a way, are going to be able to step up and fix everything that ails us. You know, Barack Obama was a very good president but I think we even saw with his presidency he just in the person of Barack Obama as the president can't solve everything that we're dealing with and he couldn't do it in eight years and he's not gonna be able to do it during the duration of the rest of his lifetime there there is no magic hero bullet that we can fire right now to fix this and I think it's harmful how we think let's go a couple of weeks ago to The governor of New York State, Andrew Cuomo. Now, Andrew Cuomo, what's interesting about him is Cuomo was actually viewed as a leading contender for the Democratic nomination, say, three years ago. You know, like if you were doing early gambling odds on who the best Democrat or the Democrat with the best odds to be the nominee in 2020, say, if you were doing that poll in like 2016 or 2017, or I guess not 2016, but really 2017 and 2018, it'd be Andrew Cuomo. He's the governor of a big state. He's got a big name. He's got a family legacy. He has the ability to raise a lot of money. And he had been, up until that point, a a pretty high-profile Democrat with kind of a national reach. Of course, his father opted not to run for president in 1992. um, And that cleared the way for Bill Clinton to come and have the surprise win in the Democratic primary and eventually beat George H.W. Bush to win the presidency in 1992. But Andrew Cuomo has always been somebody who national Democrats have had an eye on as somebody with national ambitions. He had kind of a rocky time, I'd say, in the you know 2016-2017 time frame. There's some public statements there that he made that weren't helpful. And I think he lost a lot of shine to his character and to his potential to be a national voice. Okay? So... Cuomo decided not to run. Of course, uh, Joe Biden um, wins the primary um, over a field of about 25, which people kept saying was like a field of 60, but it's a field of really like 25. But anyways, Cuomo didn't run. Okay, so we have coronavirus, where the epicenter of coronavirus is in New York State. Cuomo really impressed a lot of the public with his leadership. And really, when we talk about leadership, we're just talking about how he presented publicly. People are so thirsty to have someone who seems competent, confident, and in control. And Cuomo was able to do that, frankly, in a, in a very similar way to what Rudy Giuliani did in the days and weeks and months following 9-11 back in 2001. I think there's probably something to the idea of these gentlemen both being in the New York media market. Um, there is something about their styles and how they present. They present as very in command, in control leaders, at least in moments of crisis. And that really led a lot of folks to start to speculate that Democrats should replace Joe Biden with Chris, with not Chris Cuomo, uh, with Andrew Cuomo. Of course, Chris Cuomo is a uh, host on CNN, uh, CNN Cuomo primetime. Um, he's the brother of the governor, but Andrew Cuomo. So there, there's so much talk, you know, say eight weeks ago about, wow, Democrats. Might have an eye to Andrew Cuomo. And to me, all that signaled was, again, it's hero culture. It's this idea that you can find one individual who can step in and who can just with a magic bullet fix everything. That's not how it works. Andrew Cuomo is not the savior to the Democratic Party. Savior politics is what has gotten us to this moment. Savior politics is what got Democrats to a place where it was Barack Obama or bust. I mean, in a lot of ways, it's a reason why a lot of Democrats were let down that Hillary Clinton was the choice in 2016. And full disclosure, I worked for the Hillary Clinton campaign in 2016. She's a fantastic public servant, but she obviously had a different impact on the Democratic electorate than Barack Obama, right? But that hero culture, that idea that there's this one person that can come in and step in and and kind of fix everything... That's that's dangerous. And I think historically, if you just kind of look with an unbiased eye, it's never really been the way where political movements are sustainable and are, are things that, um, you know, can create sustainable change. So anyways, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, who obviously anybody who listened to the first podcast or anyone who's seen my commentary on TV, seen my writings, knows I'm no fan of Donald Trump. Um, not just because I'm a Democrat, but because I'm a human being and because I see the destruction he's doing to our country, but he has the the, the, the charisma. And because he has that charisma, he has been able to take advantage of the hero culture moment that we're in, this cult of personality, this idea that I alone can fix it. Remember that? Remember when Donald Trump said that during the campaign and everybody laughed? There were so many people who liked hearing things like that. That's part of the reason why Donald Trump was able to win over the support of the majority of the Republican Party, or not just the majority, but, you know, really, essentially the entire Republican Party, is because they bought into this idea that he alone can fix it. So it's that hero culture again, okay, and that's what we're talking about with Cuomo, that's what we're talking about with Obama, with Trump, okay, let's also talk about Keisha Lance Bottoms who is the really impressive mayor of Atlanta. I believe she's been in office for about two years now. Um, she is very well-respected in the city, somebody who's well-respected by the business community. Um, she's an African-American woman. She's well-respected by the African-American community. There's a strong heritage of African-American leadership in Atlanta. So Mayor Lance Bottoms, after a, a night of really devastating uh, demonstrations in Atlanta where businesses were destroyed and you know, cars overturned. And really, I think it somewhat surprised a lot of the country. Um, it shouldn't have surprised the country because again, Georgia is a little bit of a tender box when you look at what happened with the Ahmaud Arbery, but it surprised a lot of the country. And so mayor Lance Bottoms comes out and gives this stem winder of a speech where she calls on her experience as a mother um, and how she was worried about her young son. She called out the murder George Floyd. She called out the the police officers there in Minnesota for what they did. But then she also appealed to her city's um, sense of history and their sense of civic pride to go home. She encouraged people to to vote. She encouraged people to register to vote and sign up for the census and do all the things that you need to do. She encouraged people to peacefully protest. But she really gave a speech that that. I think, spoke to a lot of people in the moment, right? And she really acquitted herself well, and she impressed. And that's all great. Actually, Killer Mike, the the rapper Killer Mike, who's very politically engaged and politically active, he was a well-known supporter of Bernie Sanders when Bernie Sanders was running for the presidency. But he also gave a similar speech in Atlanta that night, too. And fortunately for Atlanta, I think, the night after... A lot of the destruction and a lot of the, the violent riot behavior actually went down. There were, there were a number of arrests, but I think the the destruction of the first night of violence went down. And Mayor Lance Bottoms obviously is being given a lot of credit for it, as she should and as she deserves. But now you go on Twitter, you kind of see political observers talking about her as she's got to be Joe Biden's running mate. And I actually don't think it's a half bad idea. I want to be very clear about that. I think she brings some very strong credentials to the table. I think Joe Biden could do a lot worse than akisha Lance Bottoms. And I think she is somebody that a lot of Democrats will be impressed to get to know. Obviously, she's a mayor of a city. She doesn't have the national voice, and the national platform. So... I think some of the concerns there would be around I'm just talking about if if Biden were to actually consider her some of the concerns there would be around vetting and around making sure that there's a high enough name ID where to where voters could identify with her. But because of that moment where she spoke out so eloquently and, and with such passion about her city, now she's being named as somebody who should be on the ticket in November for Democrats. And again, maybe she should be. But to me, it signals this hero culture because all we're doing is walking around and looking for the next hero. We're looking for the next person that's going to say the thing that we can retweet, that we can put on now this, that we can show on cable TV in a loop 20 times a day and to create this illusion that we've got somebody that's got the answers. And to me, what's offensive about it is The answer is you gotta change the system, okay? You don't have to just change the spokesperson who is representing the system. I'm sure someone like Akisha Lance Bottoms and and, and her worldview would be helpful to help change the system. That's not what this is about. This is just about the idea that we're gonna identify this hero from these different moments. There are people who have great skill sets and great talents And they should be considered because they have those. But they should not be considered because they had a viral moment. Or because they said something that's clippable and that you can share with others. That's the wrong way to pick leaders. And we've fallen into this trap where we are only looking for these heroes to rescue us from these moments. And by hook or by crook, somehow we're going to have to figure out we can't keep jumping from hero to hero. If anything that these last... 96 hours have taught us, it taught us, or it should have taught us, that the problems are systemic and the frustration is widespread. And it's not just with black people and it's not just with young people. It's not just with people in cities. It's with people of different ages. It's with people of different races. It's because the system is corrupted and there's no trust in the system. It's not because we have the wrong person leading the system. Yes, we do right now have the wrong person leading the system in Donald Trump. And it's an existential crisis and folks who vote like me, who think like me, believe the only thing to do is to get him out. But just because we get rid of Donald Trump, that's not going to change the fundamental problems. That's going to make us feel better and that's going to be disinfectant, but the fundamental problems are still going to be there. So I just wanted to spend a couple of moments talking about that hero culture, and how we have to be careful to not just accept the latest hero that we're sold by the media or we're sold by Twitter. There are very talented people, but those talented people aren't what's going to get us out of this. What's going to get us out of this is commitment to change the system. And we're going to end here by talking, hopefully in a positive way, about what the potential solution is to this moment that we're in right now. I'm talking specifically about the events related to george floyd's death and how we can reset the conversation get people off the streets get people comfortable with the idea of systematic change through the system through the census through voting in primary elections through voting in local elections and through voting in national elections because that's really what we need to do right now is to get people to believe in systematic Um, changes that can change the system. People have lost faith in the system because they've been promised so many times before that they can change things by showing up to vote and that they can change things by getting their friends to register to vote or that they can change things by being active and engaged. And people are dejected because they don't feel any confidence in that. So, We want to talk a little bit about the solution to kind of get us out of this moment and get us back to a sea level where we can actually be thoughtful and think about how to move on from this moment. I was talking to a couple people who I trust and I think before I lay out some ideas here, I think it's important to acknowledge off the top, we have to have the people to execute these ideas. Uh, particularly the person in the White House, has to be willing and able to execute these ideas. So I'll put that caveat out there that you actually have to have somebody who would believe in being able to do um, the the things that I'm going to lay out here in a moment. But nonetheless, I think if either the president or our national civic leaders were able to commit to some version of some of these ideas, I actually think it would probably get us to a place where we could at least start talking to people and having them trust the conversation again. So a couple of things have to happen. I think in Minneapolis and in Minnesota, where obviously is the epicenter of this current moment, I think you've got to have the charges come out against the other three officers who were there with Officer Chauvin. Obviously, Officer Chauvin was charged with, charged with third-degree murder, a few days ago, and while that momentarily provided some vindication, it didn't provide full vindication. Look, third-degree murder is not second-degree or first-degree murder, and there is second-degree manslaughter as well. Um, you've heard a lot of concern from the Hennepin County prosecutor there in Minnesota. Hennepin County, of course, is the county where Minneapolis is, and they are the jurisdiction that would be managing the trial related to Officer Chauvin. But you've heard the prosecutor talk about being concerned with being able to get a conviction. And look, there's some very legitimate points that they're making about learning lessons from previous cases, taking their time, um, measuring twice and cutting once, right? Not wanting to be in a place where they put up a charge that can't hold weight or that um, the officer and his legal team can talk their way out of. I, I, I believe there's probably some genuine concern about being able to get something to stick. But I I do think, from a public relations standpoint, you have to demonstrate that there's not a glide path for this officer to get off, as we've seen so many other times, where we've seen these police-involved murders, okay, where the system has been slanted in a way to make it easier for them to get off. I don't think that's acceptable in this moment. And I think what we're going to have to see are the prosecutors indicate that they're going to go after this guy. And I think you're probably going to need to see the charges upgraded against Officer Chauvin, and you're going to need to see real charges um, probably in the form of aiding and abetting or something like that against the other three officers who observed for those brutal nine minutes as he had his neck, as Chauvin had his neck on, or rather his knee on George Floyd's neck. Um, by the way, I, I'm completely okay if we don't have to see that video anymore. Um, I understand the journalistic value of showing that video, but I'm completely good if we can take a step back from showing that in an endless loop on cable news for the next um, you know, 24 hours. I think part of us healing is not continuing to exploit George Floyd's life by showing his murder over and over and over again. Um, But that's an aside. So anyways, I think the first step in Minneapolis and Hennepin County and Minnesota is to up those charges against Chauvin and to actually expedite charging those other officers who were involved. And I actually think that there's widespread public alignment there. And it's not just with lefties who are running around the streets. I think conservatives, I think they see that this was way beyond the pale That this was murder, that this was not a police officer just trying to do their job, that this was a state-sanctioned murder. And I think what we're going to probably see is a little bit more agreement on going after Officer Chauvin than I think maybe we normally would see in these these types of situations. So that's one. I think the second piece is we need national leadership. And there's only one person that can really provide national leadership. And that person is the president. Now, again, I want to put my disclaimer out there. I have no illusions about who Donald Trump is. And I have no illusions about what he has demonstrated himself to not be able to do. He is obviously ill-suited for this job, ill-suited for this moment. He could honestly be the worst possible person in the history of the world, to be given this responsibility to be president. Like, I know that sounds like terrible hyperbole, and I pride myself trying to stay away from that type of hyperbole, but Donald Trump is, honest to goodness, the worst possible person to be president because of all the things that we know about him, the fact that he has no perspective, he doesn't believe in reflection, he can't see beyond his own poll numbers and beyond his own self-interest. Literally... All of the characteristics that you want to avoid in a leader, Donald Trump has. Um, So, I want to put that out there that I understand who he is, and I have no delusions about what he has the ability to do. But, if he actually wants to be a part of the solution here, I think what he needs to do is he needs to address the country, and he needs to say very clearly that black lives matter. And he needs to say those words. People need to hear that not just from the president, but from this president, that black lives matter and that there are fundamental problems in how we police and in what we accept from police and how we have trained and and how we have allowed police officers to abuse the system over the years. He needs to acknowledge that there needs to be a fundamental change in how we police. I think he could probably set up some sort of a, Blue Ribbon Panel Commission, um, probably not one of the stodgy, slow ones that move at the pace of a gla- of a glacier, but um, you know, one that can move a little bit more swiftly to come together and come up with some recommendations. And if you want to engage former presidents or former national leaders, that's a place to do it. If you want to pull in people who have credibility um, in the movement, people like D. Ray McKesson, folks like that, people like Rashard Robinson, Color of Change, um folks who are on the ground level doing real ground level organizing with the black lives matter movement. I think that's an appropriate place to pull those folks in and give them not only a seat at the table, but a real voice and a commitment that you're going to listen to them. I think the president could do that. He could acknowledge the black lives matter. He could acknowledge that policing has to change. And then I think the other thing the president could do is he could declare a national day of unity protest. And what he could say is, I stand with those who are peacefully protesting. And in that spirit, I'm calling on a National Day of Unity protest where police are encouraged to join in with the protesters. We've actually seen some really encouraging um, video from certain places. I believe it was Flint, Michigan, where there was a leader in the police force there who got on a bullhorn and talked to the protesters about how he and his force were in agreement with the things that the people were protesting. And he asked their permission, if he could join them and if his fellow officers could join them in peaceful protest. And that was so inspiring. And I think that's the right tack. That is how this starts is by both sides, taking a step towards each other. And I think the first step has to be taken by our police forces and they need to say, we acknowledge some fault here. We acknowledge the anger the righteous anger on your side. We want to be partners in policing our communities, and we know that starts with trust, and here's how we're gonna start to rebuild the trust. We want you to tell us how we can help you peacefully protest. And I think if the president led the way and set up a National Day of Unity protest and encouraged the protesters to welcome the police to protest peacefully with them, I think that would do so much. And then, of course, obviously, let's crack down on people who are simply going around and breaking into businesses and looting and, and, and stealing things and being opportunistic in this moment, which is obviously happening. That's clearly happening. Clearly, we're having people who are taking advantage of the rightful, righteous uh, protests, peaceful protests that have resulted from George Floyd's murder. Right. We have folks who are doing that to take advantage of this moment. And that has to stop. And I think if the president can start to earn some credibility in the community, he'd probably get more partnership from some of the grass tops and grassroots level leaders at the community to help make sure that their peaceful protests are not corrupted by these people who are coming in. And in a lot of cases, they, they might be plants. You know, we've seen some very credible news stories about folks who – Maybe plan it from either law enforcement authorities or from, you know, kind of right wing groups that have a political agenda. We've seen that. Um, I haven't dug in enough to it to, to know for sure whether or not that's what's going on. But we do know that they're at, at, at a minimum, there are opportunists who are using this moment to sow more discontent. And so I think what the president has to do is demonstrate that he gets it demonstrate that he's on our side and signal to our law enforcement leaders, particularly our police on the ground, we're going to do this together with the community and we're going to march together and then we're going to go home. And after we get done marching, we're all going to sit at a table and we're going to figure this out together. And I think if the president could do that, I think he would actually go a long way to starting Again, a first step, not the final step, but a first step to start to heal what is ailing our country right now. But we obviously have the president that we have, and I think most of us realize that uh, that's a long shot. But if he was asking my opinion and he actually legitimately wanted my opinion, that's what I'd tell him. So if anyone's listening to this podcast, if they happen to have the president's ear, I'd encourage you to share that with them or some version of that. But, you know, we're hearing that the president might give an Oval Office address, and I'll be candid with you. I I have been very leery of the president speaking out throughout this entire moment because I don't trust him. I don't trust his judgment, and I don't trust his intent. And really, all we've seen is his Twitter feed has turned into the equivalent of yelling fire in a crowded movie theater. Um, He pours gasoline on things. He's talking in terms that sound more like Bull Connor, right? Talking about using vicious dogs on protesters outside of the White House, and when the looting starts, the shooting starts. Almost daring people into um, more discontent and daring people into more acts of vandalism. He's daring Americans to do that at a time where they have demonstrated that their frustration has got them to a point where they naturally want to do that. That's not what a president does. So with all that in mind, I've actually been very, very leery of the president speaking. But if the president, when he speaks, could sound even some of the notes that I just laid out. You know, the power of the spoken word is, cannot be underestimated. And it's very important in a moment like this. And if the president could do that divorcing it completely from his re-election hopes if he could just be president in this moment and be present for us i think we'd probably see a little bit more calm on the streets and i think we'd see people start to take the steps to believe that a solution is in hand but we're counting on our president to do that and unfortunately that feels like more of a long shot than it should right now i appreciate you joining me for the latest episode of here comes the pain Of course, we're available wherever podcasts are. Um, If you choose to listen and choose to be a regular listener, I encourage you to rate, subscribe, and review. Would love a five-star rating. Would love to learn more about what you'd like to hear in this feed and what we can talk about and how we can do it better. And we'll continue to have the conversation. Not just about the things that we're focused on this week, but we're going to continue to look to have these conversations in the future. Sometimes it'll be just me. Sometimes I'll have guests. Um, We're kind of figuring this thing out on the fly, and I'm not ashamed to tell you that. But we're certainly going to keep the conversation going and appreciate your time and appreciate you listening. Thank you so much.